it's hard to talk about hard things. That's like the most obvious statement in the world, right? <laughs> it's hard to talk about hard things. And I, I don't know this for sure, but it seems like there are days when it's only getting harder. Increasing polarization in American society is real. I won't quote any statistics to you today about that. You can look them up for yourself. But I suspect you don't need statistics to feel the increased tension in the last few years during conversations around politics or race or medical science or history or even the weather. The most normal of small talk topics, even the weather, can get hard if it somehow wanders into climate change. It stinks. The polarization and intensity of much of our public discourse stinks. But I'm convinced that we don't have to be trapped by it. We don't have to succumb to it. We can choose to interact with people, even people who have very different worldviews than we do. We can interact with them without yelling at them, without belittling them, without dismissing them. And we can hold up expectations that they also treat us with respect and genuine curiosity about our beliefs. I believe it is still possible to engage in civil, respectful, open conversation, even about the hardest topics of the day. And I believe that our faith in Jesus Christ compels us toward that. That is part of loving our neighbors as ourselves. But it doesn't just happen automatically, does it? It takes practice. It takes practice. Which is why we've developed the habit over the last few years of looking together at a hard topic, talking about it, seeing what we can learn from one another in conversation. Because I don't know if you knew this, but we don't all think alike here at St. Paul's. Did you know that? We have a wide range of opinions. We have different experiences. We have different political beliefs. We have different public policy hopes. And it's good for us to talk about those things. In a healthy community that cares about each other, we're able to talk about those things. So last year, we did that with policing in America last January. And this year, you voted on a topic that you most wanted to consider together, and you decided on mental illness in America. So here in worship today, we're taking a first look at that topic and our faith. Tomorrow night, Monday night at 6.30, we're going to meet in the chapel and have a conversation, what's called a deliberative dialogue, to share with one another, to consider what kind of options are available as public policy. And then next Sunday, we'll consider again uh, our faith in light of that conversation. So that's the process. Sermon, dialogue, sermon. And hopefully, we'll have gained some insight along the way, and we'll have heard from God in a fresh way about this topic. So mental illness and mental health in America, it's a gargantuan topic, of course, much bigger than we can cover in two weeks. But it's also crucially important, and I am certain it's a topic that has impacted your life. Statistics tell us that one in five Americans has a personal challenge related to mental health in any given year. And that's enough people to mean that right now, someone in your family or one of your friends or your neighbor is struggling with mental health. Now, you may not know who it is in your weekly orbit that's currently taking medication for anxiety or who it is that you know that goes to a psychiatrist regularly to help with severe depression. Or you may know exactly who it is that's being affected by mental illness in your life. 
You may be painfully aware of who in your life struggles with mental health because you have a, a child or a grandchild who has an IEP at school because of their ADHD. Or maybe you have an ex-in-law that suffers from bipolar disorder. Or maybe you have a cousin who battled with schizophrenia for decades before taking his own life. Or maybe you yourself have had to wade through the swamp of mental illness and you've had moments when your prayers were peppered with pleas to God for your mind to somehow return to balance. Despite how common depression, anxiety, and other mental health challenges are in the church, we're often silent about this kind of suffering. Mental illness is known in the church as a non-casserole disease. Okay? Obviously, that means people don't line up to bring dinner to the house when someone gets back from a week on the hospital psych floor. The historic shame and stigma associated with mental illness creates real barriers to getting treatment because it keeps people silent about what they're struggling with. They keep silent because of fear of being judged or rejected or abused. And because we have a hard time talking about it in church, we have a hard time knowing how to think about God in the light of mental illness. So that means for people suffering with mental illness, it makes it even harder for them to be confident in God's love. Hard enough anyway because mental, mental illness damages your self-esteem, right? Unconditional love can seem unfathomable when you're in the midst of a mental health crisis, but our sufferings that are related to mental health, they are in no way a punishment from God. And they're not a result of moral or spiritual failings. And what people struggling with mental health need most of all is a community of care, of love, and support, including from their church family. Now on Friday, I was scrolling around on the Washington Post app, and I came across the daily advice column. I'm always fascinated, fascinated by the advice that comes from these kinds of public forums. It's a little like pastoral counseling sessions, except the, without the pastoral part, right? So I love to read them and see what, what kind of things people ask about and the advice that they get. And as I scrolled through these posts just on Friday, I was just amazed at how many of the people seeking advice shared situations that directly impacted this topic today this topic of mental illness in America. It was a reminder to me of the various ways that mental health provides hurdles for families each and every day. Let me just read to you a couple of the posts that I saw on Friday. One woman said, I don't know what to do. My partner is struggling with PTSD, which is more horrifying than I can imagine. My kid in college is reverting back to her sketchy high school lying because she doesn't want to do anything while she's home and I just found a lump in my breast. And I can't get in to get a mammogram until February, and my primary care doctor wants to see me before the mammogram, or she won't give me a referral, and I can't get in before that date. I can't think at work, I'm exhausted, and I don't know what's next. I'm scared. Another person was having conflict with her daughter and her son-in-law because she had a long planned vacation, something she'd been waiting for for a long time, but it was going to possibly conflict with the date of their child, their first child being born, and they were mad about it. So she wrote, My daughter-in-law is truly a lovely young woman, caring, sweet, helpful. She's very sensitive. 
in the sense that she feels things deeply and her feelings are easily hurt. Right now, more than ever, with pregnancy hormones and added to it, she's had to go off of her antidepressants during the pregnancy and she's even more sensitive than usual. As a result, her parents and my husband and son pretty much all treat her as if she is fragile. I've found that I've picked up that behavior and tiptoe around her as well so she doesn't get hurt, uh, have her feelings hurt or cry, and I'm constantly reassuring her. I don't know how to talk to her about this conflict. Another person just very plainly said, do you have any resources for lingering depression? I've been struggling for months and I'm really frightened. I don't know what to do. So what they chose to do was to ask a newspaper advice columnist. That's the only resource they had. That last person sounds to me like someone who's inching closer to the perspective of Psalm 88. I wonder, how did you feel as Carrie was reading that psalm? Did it make you at all uncomfortable? Made you uncomfortable to read it? Yeah. It can be hard to hear. It's a psalm that has long made the church uncomfortable. Some of you know that there is something called the, the Common Lectionary, which is a schedule of readings that was made a long time ago to help churches be able to read all kinds of parts of the Bible. And there's a, a three-year cycle in which every Sunday has a prescribed set of readings. And in that, every single Sunday has a psalm listed for it. And since the whole lectionary takes three years to complete, that's 156 Sundays worth of psalms. You guys, there are only 150 psalms. But you know what? Psalm 88 did not make the cut. It never appears in the Revised Common Lectionary. And why? Because it's hard to read. It's written by someone who's in the absolute pit of despair. They are in pain. They are suffering. Their outlook is bleak. And the exact reason why isn't clear, but when I read it, I suspect that it's not from an outward threat, but from an inward one. The darkness that tortures them comes from the inside. For my soul is full of troubles. I am like those who have no help like the forsaken among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave. I am shut in so that I cannot escape. Every day I call on you, Lord. I spread out my hands to you. Do you work wonders for the dead? Why do you hide your face from me, wretched and close to death from my youth up? I suffer your terrors. I am desperate. And then the last line of the psalm, you have caused friend and neighbor to shun me. My companions have become darkness. Or other translations read at the end, my only friend is darkness. It's painful to read. Painful to imagine. And it is a real and honest description of the reality of some moments in life. Y'all, it is a wondrous and amazing thing that this psalm made it into the Bible. Did, we read the whole thing. We read every verse of it. It never turns to hope. Every single other lament psalm that we would find in the scriptures ends with some kind of word of hope, some sort of uplift, something like, I, I will see your love in the land of the living, something like that. Not here, not Psalm 88. 
This is the lament of someone who is in such deep pain that they're not ready to turn to hope. They're not ready to be cheered up. They are stuck in the darkness and the light has not yet broken through. And yet, and yet their words are considered holy. Their words of prayer to God are sacred. They've been preserved for us as a holy and a reliable witness of who God is. You know that's what the Bible is. It's a holy and a reliable witness of who God is. And we read Psalm 88, and it testifies to us that God is someone who hears us when we cry out of the dark, even out of the very pit of despair. And we don't have to end with a word of hope if our heart is not there yet. We don't have to end with a smile or a positive word if the darkness is so strong that we can't feel it in that moment. God still honors that, God hears that, and God is willing to record those prayers as sacred words. Perhaps this psalm is in the Bible to remind us that even the most desperate prayers are still a prayer. And whenever we pray, God honors it. The psalmist is stuck in the deepest pain, and yet he reaches out to God, which alone is an act of faith. He says at the beginning, O Lord, God of my salvation, when I cry at night, I cry out in your presence. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry. So despite his intense pain, he still believes in God and God's power to do something to change his life. He's clinging to God, searching for an answer, pleading, wanting, waiting for an answer from God. And this shows us, shows us that, that even prayers of tremendous sorrow, prayers of anger, prayers that ask God, why in the world is this happening to me? They are just as faithful as prayers because they are prayers their communication with God. And God wants to hear from us, no matter how hard the emotion. God wants to hear from us in prayer because it's what gives God a chance to remind us that our God is a God who saves. God wants us to pray even in the pit of despair because it gives God the possibility, the possibility to tell us once again, you are my beloved child and I am here with you. God wants to hear from us in prayer because it gives God the chance to say, you are not alone. You are never, ever alone. So I hope you will remember Psalm 88 after today. And I hope you'll use it when you need to. If you're in a moment of suffering and you need a way to cry out in anguish, I hope you will turn to this psalm and you'll read it, you'll pray it, you'll shout it, whatever it is that you need. It is a prayer that will honor God. But I hope, too, that you'll keep it close at hand to share with someone else in your life when they might need it as a spiritual tool, a prayer from the cry of their own heart. Whenever we know someone who's struggling with mental illness, our first step needs to be to offer a judgment-free zone. We want to offer support and listening. We want to help them stay safe. And we want to do what we can to help them not hurt other people. And we want to encourage them or challenge them to get the professional help they need, whether it's from a doctor, a therapist, a psychiatrist, a spiritual director. So that's the kind of response on an individual basis. But there are larger questions at play here for us, too, about mental illness in America and what kind of public policies we need as a community to address the crisis of mental health, knowing that so many around us are suffering with mental health. What is it that we should do?
So the deliberative dialogue has a framework of three different options and uh, what, that we're going to consider tomorrow night. One is to, to put public safety as a top priority, to realize that untreated mental health crises can sometimes create danger for other people. So this option holds that for the good of society and the individuals who are suffering, that we need to take more preventative action, that we need to identify people with men mental illness, especially those who are potentially violent, and we need to intervene to keep them from hurting themselves and hurting others. So this option says individuals should be sought out and their needs should be addressed, and we should require people to get help when they need it, intervening if we have to. A second option would focus more on making mental health services as widely available as possible uh, so they can get the help they need. This would focus on getting professionals into the community and making care more available and more affordable. We focus on screening and also trying to break down the stigma of seeking mental health care. So that's one place to put focus. A third option would be to reduce the number of mental health diagnoses and curtail the use of psychiatric medications. So this comes from people who think that um, part of the large increase in diagnosed mental health conditions is because we're diagnosing too many mental health conditions and that a person's state of mental health in a lot of places does not affect other people and that they should be able to live their lives with freedom how they want to. And uh, that pharmaceutical companies, uh, some people think, are benefiting from this drive to expand diagnoses and treatment, but not everybody has to be treated and not everybody has to be medicated. So those are the three options that we're gonna use to give us a framework to talk about this important issue for ourselves, for our families, and for our community. If you or someone you know has struggled with mental illness, I hope that you'll come tomorrow night. If you've ever wondered how can we keep our community safe, our schools safe, our church safe in light of mental illness crises, I, I hope that you'll come. If you have opinions, if you have questions, if you're simply wondering what in the world is that conversation going to sound like, I hope that you'll come. As we work together to find the best actions to keep our communities, our families, our friends safe and whole, we trust together in a God who hears our prayers, who honors our pain, who works always to rescue and redeem us. Together, let's keep praying for the health, the wellness, and the peace of all. Amen.